got uh, started on uh, James before uh, Pastor Joshua was here, so I kind of find myself wandering back there when I get an opportunity to uh, preach. I look forward to him being back next week, and exciting to be back in Luke. So you can start uh, uh, reading ahead in Luke 6, uh, and we're going to see Jesus preaching there. I think it's going to be thrilling. Really looking forward to that. Uh, as we go through uh, life, there are... Uh, questions we have that we can't find answers for, right? You prob- we probably all can think of one. Someone you love has gone through terrible suffering. Maybe you see God's enemies prosper while you're left behind. Maybe the window of your life, how you see life, has uh, been shattered in a sense by a profound disappointment and changes the way you've seen, you, you see everything. What do we do with those kinds of questions when we ask those questions? What do we do when we wish the circumstances of our life were different? When it feels as if God is acting like you don't belong to him, like you're a stranger rather than a son, like you're a beggar rather than his child. Those are some of the kinds of questions that God's people ask when they go through suffering. As we'll see today, blameless and upright Job, he's described the way in Job 1, who feared God and turned away from evil. He asked those kinds of questions. King David asked those kinds of questions in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And no doubt the first century Christians asked those kinds of questions as they were persecuted, as they were oppressed. James 2, if we go a little bit back in James, um, James is talking about how, they, how foolish they were for uh, treating the poor and not being generous towards them. But he says in James 2, verse 6 and 7, Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? The audience that James was writing to, these first century Christians, were going through oppression. They were being persecuted. We read about that in James 5, verses 4 and 6 last time. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields. And so this is, uh, James is rebuking the the rich, the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. That was what James' audience was going through, this kind of oppression, this kind of persecution. Some of that because they were poor, some of that because they were Christians. And so they were asking the same kind of questions that we ask. Why do the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? Why do the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? In James 5, verses 7 through 11, James, the half-brother of Jesus, instructs the persecuted and oppressed Christians of Asia Minor how to wait until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. How to wait until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And these instructions uh, that we're going to draw from these verses are going to help you please the Lord when you don't have the answers to your hardest questions. If you don't have any of those questions now... You will. Really, all we need to do is turn on the news and we have those kinds of questions. How do we please the Lord when we don't have answers to life's hardest questions? We're going to see this first instruction we're going to draw from this passage is to fix our hope 
on the Lord's return. Fix your hope on the Lord's return. We see that in verses 7 and 8. Should probably turn there too. Uh, Fix your hope on the Lord's return. James emphasizes the importance of patience. We see that three times in the first two verses. And in verses 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. We all need patience, and we know this. We know it's wrong to get angry, even when our brother or sister uh, is intentionally getting on our nerves, right? We know we should be patient. We know we should be patient as, you know, whatever deadline we're going for gets closer and closer, and then it goes by, and we're still waiting to leave the house. We know we should be patient. And that kind of patience pleases God. It's God's work in our lives. Um, but that's not the pro- primarily the kind of patience that James is talking about. This patience that James is talking about is not just being patient in circumstances. It's a calm, confident, expectant, hopeful outlook while we are waiting for an event that we know is going to happen and that we long for to happen. That's what this patience is. It's calm, confident, expectant, and a hopeful outlook while we are waiting for what we are certain is going to happen. And this event that we long for is described here as the coming of the Lord. The word coming here is sometimes translated presence. We're waiting for the presence of, of the Lord. It could be used, this, this word, for the arrival of a king, the arrival of the king. The Lord's coming, the Lord's presence, his arrival, is the beginning of King Jesus' presence on this earth. It is the beginning of his just reign in person, his arrival as judge and savior. And we long for this reign of Jesus because of what he is going to accomplish when he arrives. Jesus will complete his work in each believer's life. 1 John 3 verse 2 describes how what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, when Jesus appears, we shall be like Jesus because we shall see Jesus as he is. That God's going to do a work in our lives that when we see Christ will be transformed to be like Christ and our hearts long to please God as much as Jesus pleases God. We know that when Jesus returns, he's going to separate his people from his enemies. And he's going to separate his people for blessing, for reward, and his enemies are going to be judged. We know that when Jesus is on earth, when his presence is here in person, that he's going to establish his kingdom in justice. We know that the law code of the entire planet is going to be perfect. That every sentence Jesus makes will be flawless. That every decision he makes will be blameless. And there will be no more in this world saying, How long, O Lord? Right? Because Jesus is here to reign. Now, that's what we are waiting for. James 5, verse 7 gives an example of this patient, expectant waiting that we're going to fix our hope on until the Lord's return. And he says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and, and the late rains. A farmer in Palestine needed both the early rains of October, um, the late rains of March, spring, for crops to grow. And years of experience had taught the farmer, rain is going to come. So the farmer waited. And while they waited, they worked. They were confident that there would be a harvest of this precious fruit of the earth. 
And we have to set our expectations, too, on what we know with certainty is going to occur. Our Lord Jesus will come back. And that's what we have to focus on when we have questions we don't have answers for. Fix our hope on the Lord's return because he is going to make things right. Our Lord Jesus is going to come back. Jesus has promised. Oh, so many times in Matthew 24, verse 30. Jesus says that he will appear in heaven to sign the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We are going to see that. And if, and if we don't, because Jesus is still waiting to come back, we still have our hope fixed on that. Fixing our hope on Jesus' return changes how we face everything, right? Because we are patient. We have unanswered questions, but we are waiting for him to make things right. We wait in patience for Jesus to deal with those who slander or who persecute and who oppress God's people. We know that Jesus is coming to make that right. We read headlines with patience, with yearning, but with patience too. Because Jesus is going to fix the brokenness of this earth. He's going to fix the brokenness of the nations, the brokenness of nature. We parent with patience, waiting for when Jesus comes back with commendation for how we cared for the souls that he's entrusted to us. We resist temptation with patience, knowing that Jesus is infinitely better. And we refuse to compromise with the world with, with patience, knowing that Jesus is infinitely wiser. We minister to one another and get our hands dirty being involved in one another's lives with patience knowing that Jesus is going to bring reward as we give even a cup of water to one of our brothers and sisters. And we proclaim the gospel with patience, knowing that Jesus right now today is gathering his elect from every tribe and tongue, that that is what God is doing in this world. We can say with confidence what Paul does in 2 Timothy 4.8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's what unanswered questions make us do. They make us love Jesus' appearing. And we long for that. Is Jesus' return the focus of your hope? Are you loving his appearing? Now, being patient is not easy. Right? Being patient and fixing our hope is going to require that we strengthen our hearts. And that's the second instruction that James gives here. He's in the second half of verse 8, beginning of 8, he says, You also be patient. And then he says, Establish, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And that's the second instruction. Strengthen your heart. You also be patient. Establish your heart. See, patience is not passive. We work at waiting by establishing our hearts. This is something that we have to do. Now, in Scripture, the heart is more than just feelings. In this world, our heart is just all about feelings. But in Scripture, uh, heart is our control center. It, it's, it, it's, it's where our feelings and our thinking and our wanting and our choosing flow out of. The heart is where is like the center of where we evaluate everything we see and hear and learn and respond to. We evaluate and then we respond. That, that's what our heart does. And he says that we need to establish our hearts. To establish our hearts is to make our hearts 
firm, to fix our hearts, to make them stable, to anchor down our hearts in the storms of life. It's to be resolute with our hearts. Jesus, uh, uh, this word is used of Jesus in Luke 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up for Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus set, and it's that word set, he established, he fixed his face to, to go to Jerusalem. It's that kind of resoluteness, that set, that fixes. And that's what we have to do with our hearts because this life is not easy. Right? So we have to fix our hearts because we will have questions we don't have answers to. We will face disappointment and, and things in this world are unjust. Now, it's not surprising really that James speaks about establishing our hearts because a major theme in James is, is being double-minded or wavering or fluctuating or, or being indecisive in following Christ. In James 1, verses 6 through 8, James warns the one who doubts, who goes back and forth, who's double-minded, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. So James is encouraging us to, be, to establish our hearts, to not be double-minded, to not bounce back and forth between the world's way and our way. James 4.4, James warns with the strongest language in the book, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Choose your side. Be wholehearted for the Lord. And that's part of what establishing our heart is. Drawing near to God, and he'll draw near to you. He says in James 4, verse 8, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Don't be double-minded. Choose to be all in. And all in, though, for the Lord means waiting for the Lord. It means to have our hearts established. And we establish our hearts because the coming of the Lord is at hand, he says in verse 8. The coming of the Lord is at hand. It is near. Jesus' coming is approaching. A mother who is giving uh, a birth has to establish her heart. This is not a time for panic. That baby's going to come out, right? Establish your hearts. You're going to get to hold the baby. Or a marathon runner. I wouldn't know about this. I imagine other people do. Establish their hearts in a race, right? They can't think, oh, I don't know if I'm going to make it. That will not get you there. You have to establish your hearts certain that that finish line is coming. You are going to make it through that race. Now, when you're in that race or in childbirth, you don't panic because you haven't experienced that what you're longing for. You establish your heart. The coming of the Lord has not been near the way that we think about most things being near, right? Like, let's be honest about that. So far, God's people have been waiting for the Lord, which is near, for 2,000 years. So we have to look and say, wow, God's math is markedly different from mine. And uh, the Bible totally admits that. Listen to 2 Peter verses 3, 8, and 9. Do not overlook this one fact, uh, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Don't use human math. God is infinite, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God has not been negligent as he waits. How many of us here, if Jesus had come 50 years ago, wouldn't it have been born? We would have not have been spending eternity with God, knowing his great grace. 
How many of our children would not spend eternity with him if he came back now? God is patient, waiting for us to come to repentance. God's time scale and ours are not the same. A child thinks that a car ride is long, right? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And it's been an hour. Parents have more perspective. God has more perspective than we do. He, his timing is perfect. And his delay is patient, waiting for those who are going to repent. Jesus' return, though, is the next major event in God's salvation plan. His return is the finish line of our race. Jesus is coming, and this is what we establish our hearts for. We have to establish our hearts. Jesus' coming is near. So we establish our hearts by fixing our hearts upon the truth of God's word, by listening to his precious promises, by reminding ourselves of his character, and by preaching the gospel to ourselves, the good news that God loved us so much that he gave his son for us. We establish our hearts. It's not just an act of, of, of pure willpower of like, I'm going to stay firm, although that's some of it. It's God who establishes our heart. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 3.13. So that he may establish your heart blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. It is God who establishes our hearts. And really, we should be praying for one another that our hearts would be strengthened. This is how Paul prays in Ephesians 3.16. Um, so that Christ, uh, let's see here, 3.16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So we need to be praying for one another. We need to know one another. We need to be telling one another the, the struggles that we have. It's part of why it's not really enough just to come here on Sunday morning. We need to speak into one another's lives so that we can share our burdens and share that when we are having trouble establishing our hearts, so that we can pray for one another, so that God will strengthen your heart. We will face difficulty. We will face difficulty. We need to fix our hope on the Lord's return. We need to strengthen our hearts. And while we're doing that, fixing our hope and strengthening our hearts, and even as I encourage us to live, share life with one another, share our burdens with one another, but don't turn on one another. And it's kind of surprising that this is where James goes next. But that's our third instruction. Don't turn on one another. But that's really what he says. We're, we're, we're reading along. Be patient. Establish your hearts. And then verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, James' transition to our relationships with, with one another, it may, seem, it may seem abrupt, but I think it only does for a moment. I just had spoken about long car drives. I don't know about any long car drives you've experienced, but sometimes a long car drive can bring out the worst in your family, right? So if a long car drive, just being, being stuck in the same area with people, let's say the AC goes out, it's hot, you're driving through Texas, and all of a sudden people are just grouching at one another and grumbling against one another, and the kids are slapping each other in the back seat. If that can happen in, in a car ride, how much more as saints go through persecution or oppression? Really, any of those questions we don't have the answers for. We seek to be patient with our, with, with our Father's plan, but really we can be quick to snap at our brothers and sisters. As we establish our hearts we must not grumble against one another. We can't turn on one another. 
The word grumble is often translated groaning or sighing. And the word uh, groaning is appropriate. It was used of Israel groaning under oppression. When there was an invading army or Egypt and they groan, they sigh. Like this is so hard. Paul uses the word in 2 Corinthians 5 too. In this tent, in this human body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And those are good uses of the word. We sigh, we groan, we can't wait for what is coming. Well, we ought to groan and sigh for our eternal sinless bodies, but we should not groan and sigh with one another. And yet, how often do we find ourselves sighing against our brothers and sisters in Christ? We become kind of just annoyed with them, agitated, fed up with them, particularly in the midst of stressful times. Maybe, maybe you've rolled your eyes against one of your brothers or sisters. You, you mumble under your breath, here we go again. Perhaps you felt exhausted at the sight of someone. You know what they're going to say before you see them. We keep a tally of ways they've offended us. We fail to overlook. We fail to forgive them. And corrosive bitterness starts rusting away at our relationships. And that is true of just normal Christian living. How, how much worse in the pressure cooker of suffering when things are intense. Some of you have gone through intense times with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the seriousness of James' warning here may be surprising. Now, we understand, now don't grumble against one another, okay. But then he says, so that you may not be judged. So what connection is there between our grumbling against someone and being judged by God? I think James, as he so often does, is remembering Jesus' words. And really, if you, and it's neat that Pastor Joshua will, will be taking us through Luke 6, because you're just going to hear a bunch of it, like, in James. Um, but like Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Judge not, Jesus says, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus is warning that a harsh, critical person, quick to pronounce judgment upon others, and that's really what that sighing is, like, I'm so tired of them, will have his standard used against him. There's other times Jesus gives the strongest possible warning to those who are complaining about their brothers and sisters. And we're going to see here that an attitude of that complaining may reveal that you haven't been saved. It may reveal that you haven't been saved. Um, we don't have time to read uh, uh, Jesus' whole parable of the, of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, verses 32 to 35. I'll, I'll just read that portion there, but you could read the whole later. Because it's such a serious warning. And in this parable, the master summons a servant he had forgiven a huge debt. His master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? This, he was owed a very small portion compared to what he had owed his master. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That is a serious warning of judgment. An unforgiving heart is a warning that you may not know Jesus Christ. That's, 
and I'd encourage you to go back and look in that Matthew 18 passage. Um, there's, there's also, Jesus has that theme about as we wait for his return and the way we treat others. In Luke 12, verses 45 and 46. And it describes a master who's a long time been away. And a servant, it says, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in his coming and begins, begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That's a serious warning of judgment there. And the judgment is for how, at least in part, for how we treat those we claim would be our brothers and sisters. The way we treat one another reveals whether we know God's grace. The way we treat one another reveals whether we know God's grace. Now, it's always challenging. It really is one of my biggest challenges in, in teaching scripture is dealing with God's judgment because Jesus says those things. But we also know that we are in Christ Jesus will not be judged, right? I mean, we will be evaluated, but not condemned. And so he gives these strong warnings, and we see it here. He says, um, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So there's this reality that Christians are going to be judged, but there's also this, this command, don't do this so that you won't be judged. So talking about the judgment of, of believers is difficult. See, those who are in Christ Jesus do not need to fear eternal judgment. We can look forward to Jesus Christ coming back. Christ has taken our punishment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or, or evil. And for us who are in Christ Jesus, Jesus will not come back for condemnation, but for commendation. To say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we look forward to that. We long for him to come back, confident he's going to say, good job. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 15 talks about uh, the, the, the evaluation that will occur and how God brings back rewards when Jesus returns. So we know if we are, true, if, if we are truly saved, if Christ has taken our punishment, we look forward to him coming back. We know he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. But there's also this warning that he's going to come and cut some people in pieces for the way they treat one another. So that's a strong warning. And we have to say, well, who am I? When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and your obedience is evaluated by him, he examines what you've done with the time he's given you, with the resources he's given you, how will you stand before him? This is, I think, something that you can ask right now. How will you stand before him? Will you come before him humble, with a heart that is overwhelmed by his grace, a heart that has cultivated patience towards others? Right? Because when you realize how much grace he's had upon you, you will have grace upon others. Or will you come before him bitter, still obsessed with others' faults and failures and the ways that they've offended you. I would say that one of those is a picture of someone who is saved, and one is a picture of someone who's not yet tasted God's saving grace. There is no time to waste in humbling ourselves. He says, the judge is standing at the door. Jesus is near. He has his reward with him. So have you been generous and forgiving towards your brothers and sisters? Aware of how sinful you are? Or have you been harsh and demanding, 
sighing against them, groaning about them, critical of their many failures. The more we know Jesus' grace to us, the more we'll extend that grace to others. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Jesus, Jesus isn't grumbling against you. He's not sighing about you. He loves you. And I can guarantee you've sinned against him more than anyone has sinned against you. So don't turn on one another. It's going to be tempting when life is hard. You know that in your family, and you'll know it even in this church. Don't turn on one another. Don't let things get bitter. Don't sigh. Uh, our fourth instruction here. It's going to take some, as we go through these, these, these difficulties of life, and as we go through the questions we don't have answers for, our fourth instruction we kind of pull from this is, adjust your expectations and your understanding of blessing. Adjust your expectation and your understanding of blessing. See, we have an expectation problem, and we keep doing this. We tend to think that if God is pleased with us, our life is going to be easy. We quickly find ourselves there. If God is pleased with us, our life is going to be easy. And we're quick to interpret suffering as evidence of God's displeasure. When things are hard, I must have done something wrong. We forget that following Jesus is the way of the cross. That it is a path of self of self-denial. It's a path of losing ourselves. Jesus says, like, like this is not a slogan you recruit people with, but this is what Jesus does in John 16, In the world you will have tribulation. Now he also says, take heart, I've overcome, take heart, I've overcome the world. Paul preached the same thing, Acts 14, 22, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's how he preaches the gospel. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so James here adjusts our expectations, and he corrects our understanding of blessing by pointing to the Old Testament prophets in verses 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. He points our attention back to the Old Testament prophets. The prophets faithfully spoke for God, and they suffered tremendously. And yet we often think that we're going to have something different. Their message wasn't tolerated. Like poor prophet Jeremiah, it's shocking uh, the suffering that he went through. And I'm just going to read a few verses. Jeremiah 11:21. God uh, told them how, uh, or I think it's God who's, who's speaking here, but that Jeremiah's life was being sought, and they, uh, the people seeking his life say, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hand. That's Jeremiah 11:21. Jeremiah 20, verses 1 and 2, how the priest beat Jeremiah and put him in stocks. Jeremiah 26, verse 8, when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, you shall die. Jeremiah 37, 15, and the officials were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him and imprisoned him, and, remained, and he remained there many days. Jeremiah 38, verse 6, so they took Jeremiah and cast him into 
the uh, giant hole for uh, preserving water, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. That is what we should expect in life, right? That's, that's what Jesus said. You have to pick up your cross and follow me. And Jeremiah wasn't the only one who suffered patiently. God had Ezekiel's wife die and told Ezekiel not to mourn. Elijah was hunted down by wicked Jezebel to the point that he despaired of even living. Daniel was deported as a boy, spent his whole life in exile, only to be thrown into a lion's den as an 80-year-old man. Hosea went through the heartbreaking of the prostitution of his wife who left him. John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded. As the prophets suffered, James says, they were patient. They waited for God to keep the promises that they themselves prophesied. They remained steadfast. They had established their hearts. They were patient, waiting for the Lord. They bore up. They endured under the crushing weight of loneliness and the weight of slander and of insults and of pursuit and of betrayal and of violence. They continued. They held out. They resisted giving in and they resisted giving up. They were patient while they suffered. And now, James says, we know what we think about the prophets, right? We consider them blessed by God. We consider them the objects of extraordinary favor. We know that they were the recipients of his grace. We know that they were approved of by God, that all this persecution wasn't, wasn't God's punishment, but it was God's approval, even though everyone watching would have thought that those prophets were being punished by God. So the experience of the prophets exposes that God acts in the world differently than we expect. So we need to to adjust our expectations. And we need to change what our understanding of blessing is. Again, we hear Jesus' preaching behind the letter of James, Matthew 5, 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus says, you are blessed. You are approved of by God. Jesus is The Father is pleased with you, Jesus is saying, but you have to adjust your expectations. And Jesus tried. He told them again and again and again, the way of following me is losing your life. You have to pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who have an easy life. That's what you've signed up for. But yet that's what we so often long to hear. God's blessing is upon those who remain steadfast when they suffer. So this is a different way of dealing with our unanswered questions, right? It's not just flip to the right verse and I've got a verse for you. We need to fix our hope on the Lord's return. We need to strengthen our hearts. We need to be cautious of turning against one another. We need to adjust our expectations and our understanding of what real blessing is. And last, we need to trust that God will give you more of himself. And now this is cool, and I hope that you see here what James does, because it's really neat. He turns our attention further back from the prophets to the first book of scripture written, the book of Job. You have heard, uh, half of verse 11, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
Now, Job, if you don't know the story, is the man, is a story of a man. He wasn't perfect, but God looked at the man. He said he's, he's blameless and upright. He's one who fears God and turns away from evil. If you read the first chapter of Job, in the book of Job, there's a scene of heaven where Satan criticizes Job before God, and he says to God that Job is only faithful to God, to you, God, because of how you've blessed Job. And so God allows Satan to afflict Job. And Job 1 verses 14 and 22 describes the loss, not only of Job's massive wealth, because he had tremendous blessing, but also the death of all of his servants, the death of his children, either by invading forces or natural disaster, and all of Job's blessings are stripped away. But after hearing of his losses, Job responds in faith, in grief, but also in faith. And listen to Job 1 verses 20 to 22. Then Job arose after hearing of all the stuff that just happened, including the death of his children, and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He grieved, but he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. What a tremendous response to such intense suffering. Well, Satan returns to God's throne room in Job 2 and again criticizes Job, saying that Job endured because he hadn't suffered physically. Excuse me. That, that it was just, I don't know really what Satan was thinking. I mean, here his children have already been, been killed. But he's like, well, if, if you harm his body, then uh, Job is going to curse you. So God again allowed Satan to afflict Job, Job 2, verses 7 through 10. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And Job took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from a God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What a remarkable picture of being steadfast, of being enduring, of patience. Well, if you've read through the book of Job, you know how Job and his friends tried to interpret the suffering um, that Job went through in the light of God's holiness and justice. They had questions that they didn't have answers for, and they tried really hard. And they bring their various opinions of what is going on, Job's friends are basically like, Job, you must have done something really bad. And Job is like, no, I haven't done anything really bad. At least that has brought this punishment upon me. Ultimately, though, God doesn't tell Job why he suffered all these horrible losses. He's never told of this scene in heaven. Instead, what God does after these, these, these 35, 36 chapters, 37 chapters of asking questions... God humbles Job by exalting his wisdom and power as creator and king in Job 38 through 41. If you haven't read through Job, Job Job 38 through 41, it's powerful. God reveals himself in just this incredible power as king, as sovereign, as ruler, as creator. And Job gets God's point. In Job 40 verses 3 through 5, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand in my mouth. It's time for me to stop trying to figure out you, God. I've spoken once, and I will not answer. 
twice, but I will proceed no further. I've had enough, God. I'm going to just be quiet. Job 42, verses 1 through through 6, after God revealed more of himself, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And he says in verse 3, I've uttered what I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me which I didn't know. Verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, Job really was steadfast. He was patient, but he really struggled with questions that he did not have answers for. And so God reveals himself in this powerful uh, display. Now, what is God doing there? James tells us. So he says in the second half of verse 11, you have heard the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The purpose of the Lord there is you've seen the result of the Lord or you've seen, you've seen God's purpose in this and God's purpose of what happened to Job and the way that God corrected Job and the way that God revealed himself to Job. And he says, you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So this is cool. Because God is compassionate and merciful, God uses suffering and unanswered questions to bring us to know himself better. Because God is compassionate and merciful, because God loves you, he uses suffering, he uses unanswered questions to bring us to himself. Compassionate, he, and it may be a, a word here that James made up. It's abundantly tenderhearted. It's many-bowled, it says. Abundantly emotionful, merciful. It's God's heart moving towards us. And what does God's compassionate and merciful heart want for each of you? What is the absolute best thing for you? What is God's purpose for you? It is that you know him. That is what life is. John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, Jesus prays, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what life is, to know God. That's the greatest gift that God can give. It's himself. So motivated by compassion and motivated by mercy, God allows suffering and impossible questions so that we trust him. Job's steadfastness ended in knowing God better. That's what the story of the book is. It's horrible things happen to him, 36 chapters of asking questions, and then bam, God reveals that he's king and sovereign. That's what God's mercy and compassion does. It brings us to know him better. See, God brought Job what was best for Job. God was best for Job. Our steadfastness is purposeful waiting. As we are steadfast, that is purposeful waiting. And we are waiting for God to bring us more of himself. And so we hold on and we stay the course and we're patient waiting for Jesus' return because we know that when Jesus comes back, we're going to know him better. And in our suffering, 
We are waiting for the revelation of God, for God to make himself known, because we've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James 1, 12, and really the beginning of James deals with some of these same ideas of being steadfast. James 1, 3, and 4 does, but also James 1, 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In our trials, in our unanswered questions, in our suffering, in a world of injustice and oppression and persecution, when things don't make sense, those who are steadfast, who wait for God, get what they want most, him. The crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Those who love him get eternal life, knowing and loving God forever. That's what life is. It is to know God. And that is what God does in his mercy and compassion. So we do have to reinterpret what we're going through. The suffering we go through. It is ultimately God's mercy and compassion that you would know the purposes of the Lord that you would know him. Let's pray. Father, even as um, I started uh, the sermon asking what kind of question people have, I know um, that I don't know. I don't know the suffering people have gone through in their lives. But Lord, I thank you for your instruction for how we wait. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to fix our hope on the return of your son, that we would strengthen our hearts knowing that Jesus is coming back, that that's the next major thing in this plan of salvation. We pray, Father, that you would help us um, to be generous and big-hearted towards one another while we wait, that we would understand that in this world um, we are going to suffer, that you promised that. You also say those are blessed who persevere. We thank you, Father, that you are merciful and that you are compassionate and that you have a purpose in our suffering. And the purpose in our suffering is that we would know you in the whirlwind. That we would know you in life storms. So thank you, Father, even for waiting so that we would know you better. In Jesus' name, amen.